Hi, this is Father Dominic Legg, director of the Thomistic Institute. Thanks for tuning in to today's lecture. Every talk on this podcast was originally delivered at an in-person event for college students, perhaps at one of our campus chapters or at a Thomistic Institute retreat or conference. Students today are hungry for the truth, and you know how important it is for them to find it. If this podcast has impacted you, that's because someone gave a donation to make these talks possible. So I'm wondering, would you do the same for someone else this December? Even a gift of $10 or $20 has a big impact. Your gift will bring the truth to college students and to many others in 2023 if you give before December 31st. And you can make a tax-deductible donation at www.tomisticinstitute.org donate. That's www.tomisticinstitute.org donate. Thank you for your generosity. And may God bless you this Advent and Christmas season. So we can start with a question. What is happiness? What is the best and happiest life that a human being could live? What kind of life should I be aiming to live? I think those are some of the most important questions that a person can ask. And they're classic philosophical questions. But they're not only for philosophers. No one really, I think, should be exempt from asking these kinds of questions because they touch every person's life. And in a sense, the answer that you give will shed light on the whole of your life. Or at least that's part of the idea, is that by thinking about this kind of question, you can you can begin to grapple with what is the purpose or the meaning or the direction of your life. So classically, a university education was supposed to give you some traction on that kind of question. A lot of students that I meet and talk to today wonder whether their contemporary education is actually helping them answer that question. And that's, that's a legitimate, I think, question to ask about the contemporary university. But there are great insights that we can get into this from the greats of the Western philosophical tradition. And that's what I want to draw on today. And one of the greats, of course, St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, but of course, in Aquinas's approach to this question of what is happiness and how to live a happy life, he's not coming up with these ideas on his own. So in a way, he's providing a great synthesis of some of the greatest philosophical and theological figures who've talked about these questions. Notable among them would be, of course, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, has a very important place in Aquinas' thought. Also, St. Augustine, and it, which stands in kind of a Christian Platonic tradition. Also, Boethius, maybe a philosopher that you haven't heard as much about, but uh, had a lot to say that Aquinas used in the material that I'm going to be talking about. But I'm really going to be giving you the synthesis that Aquinas produced coming out of a lot of reflection that these other philosophers uh, engaged in. So there are really three main themes or three main points that I'm going to talk about. Uh, the first main point is about the fact that we are purpose-driven creatures. Then from there, we'll talk about different candidates for what could be the purpose of your life or what could happiness consist in. And those are really like insufficient candidates will kind of talk through a bunch of different possibilities using Aquinas, but he's drawing heavily on Aristotle and Boethius. 
And then we'll, we'll end with some, con some discussion of what does Aquinas actually think the best answer to this question is for a human being? So those are the three points. So the first main point, we're purpose-driven creatures. On a very concrete level, human actions, when they're most characteristically human, are actions that have reasons. And we could say you're most human when you're acting with reasons for your action. We can even say that in a certain sense, every real human action has a reason. Now, it might be a bad reason. It might be a reason that you haven't thought through very well. But it always seems to be the case that human acts are purposeful. And in fact, if you think about it, you discover that actually people who feel like they don't have a purpose become very unhappy. So having a purpose and knowing how to direct your life towards a purpose seems to be really important for the search for happiness. They're kind of the same question, really. They're tied together. Now, one of the other things that's very interesting about human beings is that we not only engage in individual acts that are purposeful, but we've, we develop whole schemes of acting that aim at goals. And often we have like near-in goals, you might call them proximate goals, then medium-range goals, and then long-range goals. So you could think about this uh, just in your own life, if you're a university student here, you could say, well, what am I doing today? Why did I get out of bed? Well, I got out of bed because I had a class to go to. And why did I go to the class? Because I want to make sure I get a good grade. Why that? Because I want to get my degree. Why get a degree? Because I want to get the job and so forth. And, and we can keep pushing out the goal. The question is, how do those goals serve like the, the most ultimate goal of your life? That's really what we want to begin to ask. Now, in the 20th century, there was a much debated philosophical question about whether there is only one all-encompassing goal for a person's life or whether you can have a kind of basket of goals uh, that, you're, that you're aiming at. So does happiness result from attaining one goal, like the most ultimate one? Or can you be happy by just having the right basket of other things? Now, here, I think it's helpful to look back at Aquinas and gain a little wisdom from what Aquinas is saying. Because kind of intuitively, we immediately say, well, you know, one goal is not going to be enough to satisfy me. Because like if I got the perfect job, but I didn't have a happy family life at home, or if I you know, if my, if my house burned down or if the Seahawks have a losing season, I wouldn't be happy. You know, I need some of those other things. Uh, I mean, the trade of Russell Wilson threatened the happiness of many people in the Seattle era. I don't know how you felt about that. Maybe it's working out. Um, I, I, I'm just trying to add a little. A, a few of you seem to be getting that joke and a lot of you seem very puzzled by that reference. I thought I was talking to a Seattle audience. Um, uh, my happiness was threatened in a short-term kind of way by the trade, but now I'm thinking, hey, you know, I think maybe it's okay. Um, okay, so it seems like intuitively to us that we're going to need multiple things. 
But is that what Aquinas means when he talks about an ultimate or all-encompassing goal? And actually here, I think uh, a philosopher, a well-known 20th century, 21st century, he's still alive, uh, philosopher, Alistair McIntyre, has defended Aquinas and explained him a bit on this point. What Aquinas means when he talks about having an ultimate end or an ultimate goal is not that there's only one thing that is so good that you don't care about anything else anymore, but rather that there might be one goal that encompasses and includes all of the other things that you're seeking so that it, in a way, kind of incorporates everything below it. So sometimes we can talk not only about like an ultimate or last end, but we could also talk about an all-encompassing end. That is some goal that would fulfill all of the things that you're looking for. So all-encompassing doesn't mean it's the only end that you pursue. It means that's in a certain way the most powerful goal or end. Or to put it otherwise, what is the thing that most deeply motivates your actions, that drives you forward? And Aquinas' answer, which maybe is not a very helpful answer at this stage of our, of our conversation about this, is to say it's happiness. Happiness is the thing that we're actually all striving for on some level. Well, that doesn't yet tell us what happiness is. Uh, but it, it is clarifying that actually this is in a way, what our lives are supposed to aim at. We're supposed to aim at happiness, that is something that will really satisfy us, satisfy us deeply, satisfy us so that there won't be a whole bunch of things that we're still looking for. Now, Aquinas thinks that we are made as particular kinds of creatures, unlike animals. We have minds, we have intellects and wills, he thinks that this is the highest thing in the human being. And in fact, to add a little theological point, even though this is mostly a philosophical talk, a little theological point is that it's precisely because we have an intellect and a will that we are made in the image of God. Uh, and that's because the image of God in us is not like a physical resemblance. No one looks at you and says, yeah, you know, I can see you have God's jaw or God's nose, you know? <laughs> the way you might have your father's jaw or your father's nose. The resemblance to God is a spiritual resemblance. And that spiritual resemblance doesn't find its manifestation just in bodily structures. It finds its, its manifestation, its, its resemblance, in the spiritual dimension of the human person. And that is in our acts of knowing and loving, our ability to know and to love, to act towards the truth towards the good. Okay, in Aquinas, uh, he would hold out that ultimately, when we're acting for uh, an end, we need to act for something that is going to fulfill our desires, and not just bodily desires, but also spiritual desires, because we're creatures with a spiritual dimension. And that's also something that typically resonates with most people. If you're talking about, okay, I'm searching for happiness, what could you make as a possible final end or goal for your life? Well, one very simple, straightforward goal might be like, 
well, I just want to eat delicious food. Okay, obviously eating delicious food has its proper place in a human life. Food is good. You can seek it licitly. But if you make it your ultimate aim, you're making a big mistake. Because it's not an absolute good. It only satisfies a part of the human person. And it leaves another part unsatisfied. In fact, the more you eat gourmet food, the more exotic the gourmet food needs to be if your goal is just to eat exotic food. And most people who pursue a life like that end up actually feeling very frustrated because they may reach a very high level of gourmet taste. But then the search for some new experience eludes them. And of course, if there's something else going wrong in your life, you can have the most gourmet meal with someone that you're having an absolute terrible fight with across from you and you don't enjoy it very much. So really to enjoy food, other things are also required. So that's interesting. And we can begin to say, okay, maybe the ultimate aim for the human being has to respect the spiritual dimension. And I don't mean like the supernatural dimension, the religious dimension necessarily, but at least the spiritual dimension of the human person. That is that we have a spiritual feature to our life. We act with reasons. Aquinas also thinks that human action is ultimately motivated by what we perceive as good. Okay, we're, we're getting to the end of the first point about uh, the fact that we're purpose-driven creatures. And we could, we could summarize that in a way by saying, well, we always seek what is good. Okay, fine. But does that tell us very much? The next question would obviously be, well, what is good? And how can we judge that? Here, actually, it's helpful also to add some clarifications. And in a certain way, we're covering a, a huge amount of important philosophical material very quickly so that we can get to the question of what might be good for my life. But to just summarize very quickly, Aquinas thinks that good is a very difficult thing to define because it's a primary notion. So actually, interestingly, Aquinas never does give just a simple definition of good. Under the influence of modern theories, a lot of people today think that good refers to what the law commands or what like the Ten Commandments tell you to do, or maybe what the Bible tells you to do. Like there's a moral law, there are moral precepts or commandments, and they tell you what is good and what is evil. And so that's really what you should do, even if I don't really want to do that. Uh, that's what the law is telling me is good or evil. And so that's what I should do or avoid. Okay, that's, that's actually a very modern way of thinking about it. Aquinas thought that good was better defined as what you desire. So he always saw the good as in some way corresponding to or satisfying your desires. So the good is what we desire. We could even say what, what evokes our desire or arouses our desire or our love. It's what we are willing in all the things that we will to do. Or to put it another way, every act of a free human creature actually arises, according to Aquinas, out of a fundamental thirst for what is good. 
And in every action, we're seeking something that we perceive to be good. Even if we know that the law tells us it's morally wrong to do. So for Aquinas, good is always a structure of human acts. We have to act for what, what is good because that describes anything that we desire. Anything that we desire, we're seeing some aspect of it that we regard as good, even if we're mistaken, or even if we know that we shouldn't do this. There's something about that act that we seek uh, and that we regard as good. And, and actually, this also tells us something about human freedom. Freedom, then, has to do with how we, as rational creatures, intellectual creatures, seek the good. We seek it in a different way than animals seek goods. They seek goods by a kind of animal appetite. We can seek the goods with our minds. That is to say, we can actually reflect on my appetites, on my desires, on the direction of my life. We can make judgments with our minds about what is going to fulfill our desires. And we can say, you know, even though that third piece of chocolate cake looks really good to me right now, I know that if I eat it, I'm going to regret it later. <laughs> and that's actually a good, like, kind of initial judgment about what's going to lead me to my happiness. Now, it's not the highest level judgment. It's a kind of low level judgment. And we hope every, you know, every moderately educated teenager is able to do this, although I'm sure you can meet lots of people on a college campus who don't know how to resist the third piece of chocolate cake or uh, the third, well, something else. But we can use our minds to judge what is good. And we can use our minds to judge what things are good to study, what people are good to love, what kind of form of life is good to pursue. And those are areas where we're engaging our freedom on a more profound level than just making a decision about what to eat or what to drink. And this leads Aquinas to a second important insight about the good. The good is not just what you desire, but when you begin to use your mind to judge what is good for you, in fact, what begins to emerge is that you will seek what perfects you. You will seek what leads to your flourishing. And that's what rational creatures are uniquely able to do. Unlike animals who don't reflect on how to live their lives, we can reflect on how to live our lives so that we begin to act in a way that will lead us towards our human perfection. And Aquinas thinks that that's what it is that we're seeking when we say we're seeking our happiness. We're seeking somehow flourishing, perfection. Okay, so then this leads us to the second main point, which is, in what does our perfection consist? What will lead us to our flourishing? Or what kinds of things are liable to make us happy? Not in a superficial way, not just in a temporary way, but in a deeper and lasting and more profound way. Is it even possible to find anything like that? And some people have thought that the answer to that is no. 
they're rather pessimistic. They say, yes, you know, all that you can really hope for is some kind of imperfect happiness. This would be a happiness that will satisfy you for today, but not for tomorrow or for this month, but not for next month. You know, it's like the Seahawks are having a winning season this year, but who knows if they're going to win next year. That's a kind of relative happiness. We could also think about the ways that we even speak ourselves about our lives. Um, I'm happy at the University of Washington. I'm happy in this job. I have a happy marriage, something like that. And you might ask a person who says those things, oh, but are you perfectly happy? Is there anything else that could possibly improve in your life? And the person will almost always say, oh, sure. Yeah, there's lots of things I could name that would be even better, that would make this, this time in my life even better. Aquinas uses this kind of reasoning to show that we have some sense of a kind of relative happiness that will generally describe our situation and also a thirst for, a great desire for some deeper happiness, a greater happiness. Is it possible that we could find some happiness that would satisfy all of our desires? Where you could answer that question, there's nothing else that I could have that would make me more happy. So some people think that it's just an illusion to talk about this kind of perfect satisfaction of your desires. And I think Aquinas would say, if you are, or he would at least agree to a certain extent, that if your horizon is this world, this life, then that's probably right. It's very hard in this life to find something that is going to absolutely satisfy you. But if it's possible that there's something beyond this life, if it's possible to attain something that will really last forever, then maybe there is the possibility of that kind of deepest, fullest, greatest, all-encompassing happiness. And Aquinas thinks that based on divine revelation, we know that there is such a thing. Well, of course, if there is a thing like that, then wouldn't we all like to pursue it? Shouldn't we order our lives towards it? Aquinas says the answer is yes. The best way to live your life is to reflect on what that might be and what you have to do in your life to get yourself there. And that makes all of the other things that we do in this world relative, of course, to that ultimate all-encompassing goal. It doesn't mean that you don't seek good food or good friends or a good marriage or a good job and, and all the other things that we can describe in a kind of basket of goods. But it does mean that we want to seek those goods on the way to something ultimate and in a way that's consistent with that ultimate good. Okay, so at this point, it might be useful to just go through the things that Aquinas lays out as various possibilities that people have put forward as what might make you really happy. And um, in general, these are working through partial goods. But, you know, these are, these are very ancient ideas and also very contemporary ideas. They haven't changed very much, in fact. Modern people are very like ancient people in the kinds of things they seek 
So let's talk about some of these classic candidates for what could make you happy. The first one is wealth. Does money make you happy? And maybe a lot of people would say no, um, but in fact, a lot of people spend a great deal of their time pursuing money. So it seems like even if they answer no on the superficial level, maybe they structure their lives around the pursuit of money in a pretty profound way. So I think it's worth asking, uh, is money really something that can make you happy? Well, when Aquinas asks this question, and he, he has a nice little treatment of it, there's a whole section in his greatest work, the Summa Theologiae, where he just, he goes one by one through these different candidates. And the first one is wealth. So he asks, well, what is wealth? Well, you have artificial wealth, that's like money, think of the dollar, and you have natural wealth. Well, what is natural wealth? Natural wealth would be things like land, houses, food, clothing. These are concrete things, things that support our bodily existence, that lead us towards some uh, bodily pleasure. You might think of owning your own Caribbean island. You know, that's a pretty high level of natural wealth. Not very many people have that kind of thing. I mean, in principle, I'm not opposed to having a Caribbean island if anybody has one they want to donate. <laughs> How does artificial wealth relate to natural wealth? Well, Aquinas observes, you know, artificial wealth, which is namely money, artificial wealth is no good to us unless you can exchange it for natural wealth. So if all of a sudden the US dollar were just made invalid and we got some other kind of currency and you had to throw all of your dollars away, the, the bills you have in your wallet or the numbers you have in your bank would not be useful to you anymore. You don't actually care about those things for their own sake. You care about them for the sake of what you can get with them. And that tells you that artificial wealth is, is not the end. The end has to be natural wealth. The problem with natural wealth is that there's only so much of it you can use. Like, it's great to have one Caribbean island, it might be great to have several, but if you have hundreds of Caribbean islands, you can't get to them all. Having one more doesn't really do you any good. And in fact, our bodies can only enjoy so much pleasure, and then we, we run into the problem that we're talking about with, with food. You become sated and there's not much more that you can get from them. So Aquinas thinks that in the end, wealth is not a good candidate for all-encompassing happiness. It might make things a little easier in your life, but it's not going to ultimately satisfy you. Okay, what about the second candidate, honor or fame? Lots of people seek this. Uh, I mean, we don't have time to go into all of the critiques that Aquinas would give uh, of these different goods, but let me just give the most pointed critique of honor or fame, he says, you're praised or you're famous for being good, or at least you want to be. You don't want to be famous for being a criminal, for example. So that kind of fame is not something you would seek. You want to be famous for being like the best quarterback in the NFL or something like that, or the winner of the Medal of Honor. So really, when we love the idea of being famous or being honored, we love the idea of other people appreciating our goodness. So to be praised or to be famous really is because we are good and other people are recognizing it. 
What happens if you get praised for something that you don't actually deserve credit for? So think, for example, if you were a soldier, maybe a soldier from World War II, and you won the Congressional Medal of Honor, the highest military decoration someone can receive. But you won it because you were cowardly hiding in your foxhole and your best friend actually was the one who got killed taking the enemy position. And through some mix-up, they ended up giving the medal to you. For the rest of your life, everywhere you go, everybody praises you for your acts of courage. But you know that it's all a fraud. Would that honor make you happy? This is like a movie uh, script or something, right? It, someone would be tortured by that. The point is that you're praised or famous for the sake of being good. Well, that just points us to the fact that we need to find some way to be good. Well, what's that? Well, we haven't yet answered that. But honor and fame are not itself the goal. They come with it, perhaps, maybe. Okay, what about power? This is also something that lots of people pursue. What is power? Well, power makes you able to do something. But happiness isn't being able to do something. Happiness is doing something or being something. In other words, power is a means. But when we're talking about happiness, we're talking about a goal, the end. So you might need power to get to certain types of goodness, but power of itself doesn't tell you where to go or what to do. And in fact, we all know that power can also be used for evil, and there's lots of good examples of that. And we also know that powerful people, strangely, are often unhappy, as are famous people, and really wealthy people. It's strange, but that does seem to, in fact, be the case. You know, being, uh, it's one of the shortest life expectancies is to be a rock star. Um, that's, that's kind of odd. It's something that everybody in our culture like exalts and, and holds up as, as wonderful, but, but a disproportionate number of rock stars like die in drug overdoses or commit suicide, or, you know, they have other terrible things happening to them. It suggests Maybe this is not such a happy life, even though it has the externals. Okay, pleasure. Now, you might be expecting me to say, okay, pleasure, yeah, that one is obviously out. But believe it or not, Thomas Aquinas thinks we need to stop and think more about pleasure. He thinks it hits much closer to the mark than money or fame or power. Why? Because it has to do with desire. And our desire is always for something good. So actually Aquinas wants us to pause and talk for a minute about pleasure because getting the right understanding of pleasure and its relationship to happiness is really important. Happiness is pleasant. So there's not something wrong with pleasure when it's done in the right way. In fact, Aquinas following Aristotle would say that Look at what a person takes pleasure in, and you begin to get some kind of assessment of their character, their moral character. Pleasure is the measure of the person. 
Do you take pleasure in very low and base things? Or do you take pleasure in higher things? In fact, according to Aristotle, being rightly trained to take pleasure in the right things and not in the wrong things is the essence of the moral life, he thinks. Okay, so now in our time, in our culture, that we have lots of confusions about pleasure. So let me just name a few kind of labels for wrong ways of thinking about pleasure. The first is uh, the utilitarian view. You've all heard something like this. The utilitarian view thinks that all pleasures are functionally the same, essentially the same, or can be reduced to some kind of common denominator, pleasure units, something like that. Uh, the, the discipline of economics makes a kind of assumption that we can make a move like this so that we have a kind of a common measure by which we can assess different activities. So economists will talk about like utils or something, which, which could be susceptible, I think, to a misunderstanding. This wrong view thinks that you can reduce all pleasures maybe to some kind of bodily sensation. Okay, then there's the hedonist view. The hedonist thinks that pleasure is really all there is. So you should always seek to maximize your own pleasure and minimize your own, plain, your own pain. You know, this already existed in the ancient world. Aquinas uh, labeled them the Epicureans. So this is a philosophical school in the ancient world. It's not a new thing. Generally, this is coupled with a kind of materialistic view of the world, so that the only real kinds of pleasure are sense pleasures. So pleasure is basically reduced to sensation. Um, stoicism regarded all pleasure as evil. And we encounter today fewer Stoics, although Stoicism is making kind of a, a part-time comeback, it seems. Um, but in the United States, for example, we often encounter the Calvinist view. This would be kind of broadly speaking, like the, the um, fundamentalist Protestant view, something like that, which is very suspicious of pleasures. You know, so probably you shouldn't dance or drink or play cards because those probably are leading you, you know, leading you to hell. That's the kind of very strong, maybe caricature of a Baptist uh, vision of, of pleasure, suspicious of pleasure. Immanuel Kant. Immanuel Kant did not really have a very positive sense of pleasure. He thought you should do your duty and that doing your duty doing what you know to be right is in a way better when you don't enjoy it. Um, because if you're enjoying it, maybe you're doing it for the wrong reasons. Um, but for Aquinas, actually, pleasure is linked to right action and to happiness. So I'd like to just spend a moment talking about Aquinas' understanding of pleasure. Pleasure, he thinks, is not a thing that you can aim at. It's the flowering of a good action. When you do something well, then there's a kind of pleasure that arises from it. It's kind of like the bloom on a rose bush. When you do an activity well, an act that attains to a good end, you encounter pleasure. You experience that as pleasant. So pleasure is not a single thing like the utilitarians think. 
It can't really be aimed at, Aquinas thinks, apart from the activity of doing something well, the goal you're pursuing. And already, I think, to reach that kind of clarity about pleasure is very helpful uh, because we often think that you're pursuing pleasure in the abstract, but Aquinas says, no, actually, what you want to pursue is doing the activity well, and then you will find that it's very pleasant and that it's analogical because it's the pleasure of a particular kind of activity. So there's a pleasure of eating a chocolate bar. There's the pleasure of a hot bath. There's the pleasure of a good meal eaten with friends. There's the pleasure of a beautiful fall day. There's the pleasure of watching your sports team win. There are pleasures of winning at some sporting event. My friend Jeff, who's here in the audience, is an impressive athlete. He can tell you there's a pleasure associated with doing some really painful activity for a long time, such that you cross the finish line first, right? We, we understand that. So there may be something in it that you would not describe as pleasure, but actually as painful, but that it is worth that suffering, you might say, for the higher pleasure of victory. There are other pleasures like reading a good book, watching a good movie, studying something and understanding it. Have you ever had that experience, like maybe in a high school math class where you're struggling to understand a problem and you finally get it? And there's a pleasure that comes with that. It's not a physical pleasure. It's the pleasure of knowing the truth and also like becoming mathematical. You're becoming a mathematical person. There are also pleasures of teaching another person or giving a gift to someone. The pleasure of helping someone in need. When you begin to engage in these kinds of pleasures, you discover they may be much more satisfying than the pleasure of having a good meal. And even higher than this, there are pleasures of the spiritual life, properly so-called. Knowing God, loving him, giving your life to him, praising him, being united to him in receiving the sacraments. Those kinds of pleasures operate on a very high spiritual plane. And Aquinas thinks that they are real pleasures. And once you begin really to have a taste for them, once you begin to taste them, they relativize a lot of the other pleasures in your life, and you're willing to sacrifice a lot of other things for the sake of those higher pleasures. The point here is that pleasure is not opposed to happiness. The trick is figuring out what the right pleasures are and not aiming directly at the pleasure, but aiming at the good. And then you will see that you get the pleasure as a result. Okay. There's a lot more that we could talk about, but our time is short. So let me move on to uh, one major complicating factor and then the third point. There's a major complicating factor with human beings. What is it? It's ourselves. So we can think through what will be good for me. And I can make up my mind that like I'm not gonna eat that third piece of cake. But it doesn't necessarily follow that I won't eat the third piece of cake. And we all have this experience. That can produce a kind of uh, real interior pain 
because we are divided in ourselves. Our minds will tell us what we know is right, and we still want what we know we shouldn't do. Now, I think that's a, a universal human experience. Some people try to get away from it by like lowering their expectations for themselves and ignoring what their mind thinks is right. And that doesn't work. Uh, you, you need to, like you do need to use your mind. Uh, some people try to just like numb themselves into oblivion at the interior conflict that they experience. But that also is not a good strategy. The ultimate reason Aquinas thinks why we have this kind of division in ourselves, a divided heart, is because of the fall. These are the effects of original sin. So now here we're really moving into the realm of theology, but I think it's necessary to really explain the phenomenon that we all experience. So Christianity teaches that something went wrong in the very beginning with human beings, and because of our disobedience to God, we have inherited a kind of rebellion within ourselves so that what is lower in us rebels against what is higher, just as we rebelled against someone higher than us. So that we now have physical bodily desires, often it's, it's the bodily passions where, uh, that are the most troublesome in this department. We have bodily passions that push us to do things that our minds recognize are not going to make us happy. And we have a very hard time keeping that on the right track. So this is one of the most important things for our moral lives. It's getting that dynamic under control so that we actually can begin to live the way our minds tell us we should live. We need to infuse reason into our desires. That's not easy to do, and it takes training. Ultimately, Aquinas says, you need grace. You need God's help because by ourselves, we're always going to be hopelessly divided. So now I'm really making a very theological point here. Only by the help of God's grace can we ultimately surmount that deep problem, which in fact is sin, and arrive at a kind of serenity and interior harmony, which really is possible. God really does offer that to people through the gift of his grace. And when you begin to experience it, you now feel like you are gaining freedom for the first time in your life. And what does that mean? It means freedom to do what you know you should do. The worst kind of slavery is not from an external chain. It's from knowing what you should do and being unable to do it. And that causes a lot of interior pain. When you are freed from that, then you begin to really be free, even if you still experience lots of external constraints. Okay, so this brings me to the final point, the third main point. What will really satisfy the human person? What are we made for? Well, Aquinas says we're body and soul, body and soul. So we have certain bodily desires and we need to satisfy them just to like stay alive minimally, you know, clothing, shelter, food, drink, etc. But those are not the highest things for us. We may need a certain amount of them, but even more than satisfying the desires of the body, we need to satisfy the desires of our soul. 
What are the desires of our soul? To know the truth, to love, to be loved. In fact, these things we never get enough of. And Aquinas makes a very interesting remark about this. He says, bodily desires are very different from spiritual desires. We desire uh, bodily things that we don't have. So when you're thirsty, you don't have enough hydration. When you're hungry, you don't have enough food. When you've had enough food, you stop desiring more food, at least for a time. And food can become even repugnant to you if you eat really way too much. So you desire what you don't have, and when you have it, you stop desiring it. But spiritual desires are the opposite. And that's very curious. When you don't have something, you don't desire it. And when you begin to have it, that's when you begin to desire it. It's like knowing the truth. When you're ignorant of the truth, you aren't seeking it necessarily. There may be a zone that you don't even know anything about. Certainly, this is true of God. People who don't know God do not seem to desire God. But when they begin to experience something of the spiritual life, it awakens in them a desire. And the more you know God, the more you desire to know him. Aquinas thinks that contemplation of truth leads us to God. It's what our minds are made for. The, the reason we have minds that can know the truth is because happiness is an activity, an activity above all, not of body, but of soul, of mind. So the ultimate goal, Aquinas thinks, is only going to be found in the one good that encompasses every other good and is the source of them all. And what is that? It is God. God who is the source of every good. He thinks that there will be nothing finite that will completely satisfy our desires, only something infinite, and that could only be God. So, what is our true happiness? Aquinas thinks it means acquiring virtue, living our lives with a purpose, thinking through how the different activities of our life are going to lead us towards what is highest in us. And ultimately, he thinks that the life that we lead needs to be ordered somehow to God. And ultimately, by his grace, we receive that gift of being ordered to God perfectly. That tells us something very important about what human beings are. We're made in the image and likeness of God. And we're made to become more and more like him. So we can conclude with the words of St. Augustine, beautiful words that perhaps you know from his confessions. Speaking to God, Augustine writes, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee, O God. We're made as from God and with a built-in desire for God, even though we may not recognize that in all of our seeking, ultimately the highest good that will quell our appetite is God himself, the only thing that will make us ultimately completely happy. Thank you. Father, like, thank you for being here in the fantastic lecture. Question about the 
pain that you associated with pleasure. Um, not only the sporting type of your friend, um, which as we learn more about endorphins and these biological feedback processes points towards a natural uh, mechanism for that, um, or things like childbirth, the analogy of some of the greatest pain producing the greatest good, or the biblical insight of for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. Even though you only briefly touched on it, it seems like that might be a major piece here um, with what you or Aquinas was trying to say. Could you say more about those great pains and how they relate to pursuing the greatest good? Yeah, so, well, just to start off with a clarification about, like, um, endorphins, that that's going to produce, like, uh, a euphoria or, uh, you know, feel, a physical feeling. But I think that's distinct from uh, the the pleasure of, like, running the race well. Um, because even if you don't get the endorphins and you're just completely wiped out at the end of the race, you might have a certain pleasure in having competed well. And I think there is something, there is something about that that's distinct. It's not, that's not talking about a physical act or physical pleasure. Um, but then when you start talking about childbirth, you know, there, that's actually very interesting and much more complex because the, you know, what is the, what is the mother experiencing? She's experiencing the, you know, the joy of her child, you know, the life of her child and the, you know, the love, the communion that she has in that, in that moment. And what's interesting about that is that um, it's not that the, you know, that the love for her child was generated by the pain, um, but maybe, you know, it certainly relativizes the pain. Would we want to say, yeah, actually, we, you know, like, I'd like my spouse to have a more painful childbirth so that she will love my child better. I don't think you'd want to say that. Um, so probably, you know, probably you want to say, yeah, the pain is a negative and we're not aiming at the pain. But we can see how the pain is relativized because of this very great good. And that's also... Uh, you know, if you want to move this into a theological, you know, the theological realm, what's the greatest example of this? It's the cross. Okay, so Jesus on the cross suffers the greatest pain, and Aquinas has a long treatment of that. Um, is that what is pleasing God in the death of Christ? And uh, Aquinas says, no, it's not the pain. It's the love it's the love of Christ who is willing to endure even that pain for our sake. So God doesn't will the pain as such. Pain is an evil. Um, but the love, in a way, is manifested in a, in a paradoxically strange way through the willingness to endure that kind of suffering for us. And who's really intending to inflict pain on Jesus? It's the soldiers who are killing him. Um, and that's not a good act. That's an evil act. So intentionally inflicting pain is always is always bad, um, unless it's you know actually intending a good. So maybe you could talk about like punishment, like a parent punishing a child um, with some kind of bodily punishment that's painful, but uh, maybe for the child's good. Okay, so we could go further down. That. Have I answered your question? Absolutely. Hi, Father. Thanks. Um, so I have a question. You said. About the sacraments, you get it once you get a taste of God in the sacraments. 
everything else kind of uh, it, it becomes relative to to how good that is. Uh, can you maybe talk more on how one can have that taste? How is that? How does that happen? Precisely. Yeah. So I mean, we don't just mean uh, the physical act of receiving a sacrament is enough. You know, somebody without faith who goes into a Catholic church and receives the Eucharist um, isn't getting enough. Um, uh, because the Eucharist requires faith to receive what it really is. Um, so what I'm trying to refer to is the spiritual communion with God, which is given to us through the sacraments, like through reception of the Eucharist. So someone who makes a, a meaningful spiritual communion in receiving the Eucharist, spiritual and sacramental communion, may even receive some kind of, you might say, psychological, emotional consolation from that, um, something sensible. Certainly on the level of the, you know, the highest part of the soul, you begin to recognize that God is present to you and drawing you into his life, consoling you, strengthening you. And that's mysterious. It's difficult to describe. Um, it's not just a psychological phenomenon or just a psychological experience. I think there's something deeper than that, that it may manifest itself with certain psychological experiences. Am I answering your question? I pretty, so, so it sounds like um, at, at the very least, it can be a, an awareness of God's presence and the nature of God's love. Yeah, I mean, I think if, if you just talk about the pleasures of the spiritual life, what are the pleasures of the spiritual life? I mean, if you just walk down the street in downtown Seattle and you say, hey, you know, you grab a, you grab a person walking down the street and you just say, hey, come with me into this church where the Eucharist is, um, there's adoration of the Blessed Sacrament where the Eucharist is exposed. And you're like, isn't that awesome? You know, um, the person may be like, you're crazy. Like I'm, I'm on my way to get a latte. Like, excuse me. Like that's more important to me than this. Um, you know, like I, that will actually do something for me. Um, what is this doing for me? Uh, so it's not everybody who has that experience. It requires already something, something spiritual has to be going on in the person. Aquinas would say, God has to be taking the first initiative to arouse in the person some kind of awareness of the spiritual good. And a spiritual good is not something you can just touch with your hands or see with your eyes. Um, it's something that's operating on the level of the soul. And it's, um, it's kind of mysterious to people who haven't experienced it before. Because they, they might say, well, you know, listen, I have a human life and I, I know what it's like to live a human life and I've never had anything like that happen to me. So I think it just doesn't, like, it's just not there. Um, you know, I got COVID and I profoundly lost my sense of smell for months. Um, I don't know if anybody else had that experience. But it's a weird experience because it was like this whole zone of human experience just stopped existing for me. Um, and it wasn't like a negative uh, thing. I mean, a negative thing in the sense that I, I didn't feel any pain. I wasn't even, initially, I wasn't even quite aware of it. Like it happened to me because I, I went to make coffee and I was like, this coffee has no smell. Like this coffee is probably no good. You know, I threw the coffee out because I was like, this, this coffee has gone completely stale. I've never seen that before. Like coffee that has no coffee smell. And then I opened up a fresh package of coffee and I like stuck my nose in the ground. So I was like, this coffee has no smell. And then I realized the problem was with me. 
that I was like, there was a zone of human experience, which we all like, it's kind of mysterious. You smell things and you, you immediately register what they are. And I would walk into a room and have no clue. Like, Oh, there was something burning. You know, somebody had lit a match. No, no sense of that. Um, you begin to worry, like, do I smell bad? I wouldn't know. Um, so, but it's something like that. Like you, you don't even know that, that that's, possible to you. And it's only when you begin to experience that you're like, wait a second, human beings are made for something higher than this? I didn't even know. And as you begin to know that, like, then you want it more. And the more you experience it, the more, the more you enter into it. I think that's what Aquinas is trying to describe. Thank you. So God can use the COVID even to like, to help me explain something in Aquinas. Maybe it was for a reason. Yeah, so thank you, Father. Um, I guess I'm wondering, just thinking about the connection between, like, should, I should do this, right? Because we talked a little bit about Kant and his, his sort of, like, uh, obligation idea of, of what we should, what, what ethics is about. Um, and then Aquinas kind of contrasting um, that with Aquinas' view of, of its, like, what we desire and that desire uh, aspect of it. I guess, yeah, I mean, just, I'm wondering how, because like Kant was a smart guy. <laughs> yeah. um, and there's definitely something, and we even talk about, I should do this. So what about when you are virtuous? And I guess, like, how does the should and the, the I want, how do they coincide? And how are they related? Yeah, so that's that's a great question and not an easy one to to answer. So I'll do my do my best to answer it. Uh, I mean, maybe it would help to take a step back and put this um, debate. Maybe you would say, or these different viewpoints in a in a wider framework. So for Aquinas, um, it, well, let me start with the modern the modern mentality. The modern mentality is that when we talk about morality, we're talking about like obligations and doing doing the commandments like there's a commandment you either obey it or you disobey it and then that's good or bad um, so then good becomes tied to that idea um, so that's really what I was trying to identify and that's that's a very modern understanding and absolutely that is like the world that Kant is living in um, it's also a lot of other modern philosophers um, you could even trace it back to William of Ockham is the classic person it's you know the people trace it back to uh, medieval Franciscan. Um, so a, ca a Catholic priest, but a Franciscan, I mean, okay, so. You know. um, whereas for Aquinas and for Aristotle before him, um, and for really the whole tradition, Augustine, Plato, um, and many others, uh, morality was not about um, commandment and obedience at yielding like what is good, but it was about um, happiness. So morality is seeking what perfects you, which means what leads you to your flourishing, which means what's going to make you uh, happy, what's, what you're going to experience pleasure. You know, so for Aquinas, like the, the highest pleasure is going to be what we have in heaven. And it's not going to be pleasure disconnected from God. It's going to be actually the pleasure of enjoying God himself, like being united to God. Um, okay, so that these are different ways of talking about what is good 
And therefore, you know, like now, can you can you work a commandment into like Aquinas' system? Absolutely. Because we often don't know what's good for us. So God teaches us the way a good parent teaches a child. So a parent does not like explain to the toddler, like, listen, the stove is hot, fire is hot, and your body will be burned by it. So if you touch the stove, um, you're going to be burned and that's going to be do damage to your body and you're, you know, like give this whole medical or biological explanation. Obviously, the child doesn't understand that. You say, no, <laughs> don't touch the stove. Like that's that's the level on which you have to communicate that. Um, or running out into the street, you know, without looking. It's like the child does not appreciate the danger. Um, so you just start with commandments. But the commandments are not there just for the sake of like imposing the parent's will on the child. Maybe certain bad parents do that because they just take some kind of perverse pleasure out of controlling another person. But most parents are doing that because they love their children and are trying to protect them and educate them. So the point of the commandments is actually to educate us in what is threatening or what is good. Uh, maybe first more what is threatening you know, keeping us away from the bad, but that implicitly is pointing us towards what's good on some level. So there is a place for commandments in Aquinas' system and duties and obligations, but that operates at a low level of like for the morally immature. The morally immature need commandments. Once you become more morally mature, you don't need the commandment anymore because you're now understanding what's really good. So to use an analogy, like... Um, you know, we have in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill. Hopefully, you know, we have a married couple here. Hopefully the husband does not need to like constantly be remembering, oh, gosh, I'm not supposed to kill my wife. I'm not supposed to kill her today. I'm not supposed to kill her today. He doesn't need that anymore because he's already integrated that into himself. Like, and loving his wife is going to, like, he's not even going to think about, about killing her, at least most of the time, probably, right? You know, let's, hope, let's hope that that is... Uh, so the, the point is the commandments are, are actually like they're not supposed to be fulfilling the commandments is not the ultimate goal. Fulfilling the commandments is like the minimum condition for pointing us towards what we're really supposed to be doing. So if you set up a whole moral schema or you define right and wrong, complete or good and evil completely by commandments, you're missing something. It's not that what you're doing is totally false, but it's just going to be it's going to be insufficient. It's not going to really get you where you want to go. Uh, and that's the, that's the difference. So there's something true in it, but it's not complete. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Thank you so much for your talk, Father. I think there was one question I had that was answered already by a previous answer that you made, but one that I'm still wondering about is like when you talk about how there's a difference between like getting pleasure out of really base things and out of like higher things is there like what determines just how high or how low a pleasure would specifically be like for example if it can give you a specific kind of gratification or something i don't know that's something i'm still wondering about yeah i mean so we could say you know like Rooting for the Arizona Cardinals, low pleasure. Rooting for the Seahawks, high pleasure. Okay, that, but that, that obviously, that's, that's a joke because those are the same, the same kind of things. Um, so there's, you know, you might say, well, what is, what is the noblest part of the human being? You know, we, we have certain things in common with, like, rocks. We exist, you know? 
we, we fall down, you know? Um, and so you could say, well, you know, I take a certain pleasure in like really being here. Um, and okay, you know, that's not the highest thing. Um, then you could say we have certain things in common with plants. You know, we grow. Um, and I take pleasure in, you know, in growing. We have certain things in common with animals. We have sense appetites. Like we sense things. We, you know, we engage in the search for food reproduction. Um, Aquinas actually goes through exactly this analysis, believe it or not. Yeah. I'm just like paraphrasing Aquinas here. Um, yeah, so I mean, we, we do things that are, we have in common with animals. And those are also good. Uh, it's not, but those are not the highest thing in us. What do we have that's higher than animals? We have reason. So we have intellect and will. So then knowing the truth, that's a higher kind of thing, which animals aren't really capable of doing. Animals do not like contemplate the beauty of even like a math equation. Um, let alone, and then you could say, well, you can contemplate the beauty of like a, an engineering equation that tells you like whether this bridge is going to stand up or not. Um, but is that the highest thing? What about like knowing something that's more eternal, uh, knowing something that tells us uh, a truth about who we are or a truth about our place in the world or ultimately a truth about God? And I think that's how you can like discern what we're talking about with higher and lower. Okay, thank you. That was a really thoughtful response. Thank you. Um, one thing you said was the worst slavery is when you know what you should do, but you're unable to do it. And talk about kind of like creating discipline so that you could infuse reason into your desires. What are some like soundbite type types of discipline that we can use to start getting out of that trap? So, you know, Jordan Peterson is a hugely um, uh, popular speaker, and he talks about this kind of thing. You know, like he gives you, you know, he says, like, make your bed in the morning. Um, so that's that's something very simple, very concrete that you can do that starts injecting order into your life. And you can feel like you've already accomplished something, you know, five minutes after your day began. So that's that's not a bad idea. I mean, I think Jordan Peterson has some good things to say about these kinds of things. Does he have a completely sufficient um, explanation? No, I don't think he does. I think actually he is pointing you towards certain natural virtues that you could acquire, but he stops short of the, the more important virtues, which ultimately need to be uh, supernatural virtues, which are going to deal with the problem of sin in us. But uh, so if you're talking about like soundbite things we can begin to do to gain more freedom, I mean, the short answer, according to Aquinas, is virtue. So what are the virtues? There are classically the seven most important virtues that you need to have. The, um, the four cardinal virtues, so that's prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. Temperance deals with the pleasures of touch. Uh, fortitude deals with, you know, overcoming difficulties. So you need to be able to confront difficulties and overcome them um, to achieve the difficult good. Like there's, that's a problem that a lot of people have. They know what the good is, but they get discouraged in the face of any kind of obstacle and they give up. And then they, then they despair. That's a very unhappy position to be in because you know, oh, there's this great thing, but I just never got, got myself out of bed to do it. Um, so fortitude, you know. Then uh, justice, that's rendering others what is their due. And that's extremely important for social relationships. You will not have good friendships if you are not a just person. If you are constantly cheating people or lying to people, you, you are going to destroy your human relationships. So, I mean, th these are like basic 
basic things that everyone, and there's sub-virtues that Aquinas would identify, but these are the most important. Prudence is, he thinks, the most important of the moral virtues, because prudence is what helps you to judge what is the right thing to do under these circumstances. Um, so prudence is actually very um, context-specific, and it's like a, a habit of mind by which you judge rightly about the real circumstances you are in. So then you know, like, is this the right time to tell my friend that, like, he's being a jerk, or should I wait till later, you know? Um, and that, you know, that's a very important judgment to make sometimes. Um, but those are on the natural level. On the supernatural level, it's faith, hope, charity. So those actually are the virtues which are divinely infused by God, the gift of grace. We cannot generate them of our own, but God freely gives them to us through no merit of our own, and it really gives us a living relationship with God. And that is, in a way, even more powerful than those natural virtues. Aquinas thinks that if you have sanctifying grace, so if you're Catholic, you've maybe heard the state of grace, you know, being in the state of sanctifying grace. If you're in the state of grace, according to Aquinas, God's also giving you the help of supernaturally infused moral virtues, like infused justice or infused temperance, which will help you to do the right thing, even though you did not start off making your bed, you know? Like, God, actually, it's possible that if you don't make your bed, you can still be saved, you know, and God God can help you do that, but you should still make your bed, you know? Sorry, I'm trying to be, you asked for a sound bite, so I'm trying to give you. Thank you. And don't ask my mother if I used to make my bed when I was in high school, because the answer won't be good. Why do you think that this very coherent view has had such trouble in Western philosophy over the last 400 years? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, there's a, a book, uh, maybe you've heard of it, by um, Cervés Pincares. He was a Dominican. Um, you're nodding, so I think, you know, I, I, I think I, I would not have as good an answer as he would, so I'd like retreat into, into his position and, and cite him. So he has this book called The Sources of Christian Ethics, uh, which make, it kind of traces a historical account of like the synthesis that you have in uh, Augustine and reaching, he thinks, kind of a high point in Thomas Aquinas, and then the progressive breakdown of that synthesis over time. And he thinks that part of it has to do with misunderstanding, um, well, misunderstanding the good, what is, what is good. It's like thinking about... Um, the good as perfective, or the good as just something that is commanded. Um, so there's a philosophical issue in the background there uh, that Pinkers identifies, uh, which you know is tied to this philosophy of nominalism that William of Ockham uh, was a proponent of. So, I mean, it depends on how metaphysical you want to get, but but to like to sketch out what the picture of that would be for Aquinas when you talk about goodness. It's also related to being. So insofar as something exists, it is good. And as we were talking about, like good is what is perfective of someone or something. Um, Aquinas thinks that's, that's also a metaphysical truth. So like the good is what leads a thing to achieve like the fullness of its being, to be fully what it is. Um, so there's a, a whole kind of implicit philosophy of 
kind of goal directedness or a trajectory towards a, like a building up towards perfection that every being in some way is, is on a trajectory towards its perfection. It's precisely some of those philosophical presuppositions that come to be questioned. Um, so Occam wants to disassociate being from goodness and he begins to like with a nominalist philosophy, he's basically saying, you know, there, there aren't like these categories of things are not real. They're just, uh, our minds are creating categories of things. We're applying names to them. Um, and so you, you begin to lose the sense that there is like such a thing as a human being. There are just a whole bunch of these individuals and we just happen to apply the name human to them all, but they're all actually discrete, different individuals. So once you make a move like that, you begin to say, well, how can we say that what's good for you is, you know, might be good for me or that we could have the same nature that's tending towards the same perfection. And then you, you just end up in a, in a world that is less and less coherent um, for talking about that kind, of, that kind of flourishing. And then it's like, well, I guess you just do whatever you want because it's like you're, you're just a radical individual. And you can see how that, there's something of that in our current mindset. So it's the loss of the ideological movement. I think so. Yeah, I think that's. But I think that's also connected to a metaphysical question about um, like whether being and goodness are convertible, as Aquinas would say. But now we're really getting into like, um, you know, a deep philosophical question which is a great one. I mean, I don't know if we would have gotten this many people at the talk if we'd said, you know, the metaphysics of being and goodness, you know, but um, it's a good, that's a really good topic. So I guess my uh, question would be why, or how do we recover that? Well, you know, interestingly in contemporary philosophy, there has been a return to an appreciation of what's called teleology. Teleology is just a, like a, if you haven't heard that word before, it's based on the Greek word uh, for telos or end. So goal or end. So teleology would be like looking at how all things act for a goal. Um, and there has been a contemporary kind of recovery in contemporary philosophy of um, a recognition that, yeah, we do see teleology in the world all around us. So for example, biology, um, is heavily like has deep presuppositions of teleology in talking about like, why are these organisms behaving this way? Well, they're behaving this way for the sake of something. They're behaving that way for the sake of like reproduction or uh, evolutionary advantage uh, or, you know, survival of, of the species. Um, so that's already to say that there's some kind of goal directedness built into them in some way. So beginning to recognize that more and more, um, you know, I think there was a, there was a time when the early phase of, of what's called like the scientific revolution wanted to bracket this question of teleology and say, well, we, we don't actually have like um, a scientific experiment that will show us what the end of something is. So let's just pretend that it's not there and work as if we could ignore it. And what's actually now happening is like more and more people are recognizing, okay, yeah, we, we, need, we need to bring this back into the picture because it does seem to characterize reality. Thank you once again, Father, for this talk. Um, I would say um, one thing that I might bump up against, uh, like talk when I'm just walking around talking to people like, on campus and just around, 
is um, the question, so like you can give people presentations of, of um, what would fulfill all desire, I guess you could say, um, or the condition of good and flourishing, but um, oftentimes people would say that would have sound but would use sound bites such as like um, it doesn't matter to me, or like I uh, it doesn't make me happy, or uh, the fact that nine out of ten millennials no longer who are raised Catholic no longer go to church, they would say I've tried that uh, and I've tried everything you said uh, and I don't find it satisfying. Um, and not only that, but people sometimes also what I've seen in like the secular world is pursuing of like chemicals. They say like I'm looking for endorphins or serotonin or or uh, for uh, oxytocin. They say um, I this is what produces those chemicals in me, and these produce happiness because that's what happiness is. And um, what have you found to be effective to dislodge people? Um, I would say from in this idea of uh, happiness is that which produces these chemicals, and this is what produces these chemicals in me, uh, and therefore I'm satisfied as such. And you kind of mentioned it somewhat in terms of like, I can't smell, uh, I don't know what I don't know, but I should say, I can't see purple. And I usually tell, use that example. Uh, but, and I just want to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, that's a really good and, and difficult question. Um, I think. Well, there are a number of different ways to, to approach it, maybe. Um, one would be to talk about, you know, okay, we have neuroscience and neurobiology that are analyzing brain states. And there are some claims of neuroscience that we can, you know, we actually can, like, get to the root of all human human experience. Um, the Thomistic Institute in Washington, D.C., well, we sponsor a lot of talks on that. And we actually had a conference uh, a few years ago. We were brought together a bunch of neuroscientists about brain imaging and this search for happiness. So, I mean, you, it's pretty interesting what some of them are doing, but also there are some very reductive presuppositions built into some of that, uh, some of that research because it, uh, it presupposes that we're just talking about brain states. Um, and it also makes it seem like this could be disassociated from the things that you do in your life. Like if we just gave you the right injection or the right, you know, we were able to stimulate certain regions of the brain in the right way, we could make you happy even if the rest of your life were wretched. Um, now, I mean, we, you know, those of us who've spent some time in Seattle, you go around and you see people who are ingesting like chemical drugs, right? And then are stupefied, basically. Um, and they're, you know, they're living in objectively wretched circumstances. Uh, but they, they, that seems tolerable to them somehow, or maybe even desirable because of, because of the stupefying, you know, chemicals. But I think even most of them would recognize that like, this is not really all that life could be. And often that's an attempt to escape from something painful and escape into a zone of, you know, like where I don't have to I don't have to grapple with it. I can just, I, I read an article by somebody who was describing the experience of, I think, being basically a heroin addict, saying it was like, you know, the, the injection would make him feel like he was on the beach in Hawaii and all of his problems would go away for a few hours. And, you know, he just, he couldn't deal with the problems. And so he just kept wanting to go back to the beach. Um, the problem is that's not the reality of life. And even when you have those chemicals, if you don't have the reality of a flourishing human life, it, it, it does not actually work over the long term. 
So I think um, really more needs to be said than just the chemical states of the brain, because it does seem to be connected to like something much deeper in, in the human life. And I think I would suspect that most people sort of recognize that even if you might still get in an argument with a hardcore neurobiologist about like, oh, you know, actually you're never going to be able to give me something that isn't, that I can't like go back and do the brain state analysis on. Um, I, I mean, your other question is like, well, I've tried that. You know, I tried what Catholicism says and it didn't work for me. So now I'm trying something else. Okay, I mean, there's something kind of legitimate about that. I mean, if the person really tried it. Um, but it may also be that, well, as a pastor, you probably know that a lot of times the reason that like someone's spiritual life isn't working is not because like they're not doing this technique right, but because there's some other obstacle. So to, to just talk on a spiritual level, like this is not really a philosophical answer. There's like a practical pastoral counseling, you know, point, which is that, you know, if you get someone saying, oh, you know, I'm having difficulty in prayer and I'm spending all my time in prayer, but actually, you know, it's, it's never working for me um, or something like that. Sometimes the problem is sin, you know, like if there's a grave sin in the person's life that they have not given up, all the Eucharistic adoration in the world is not going to, is not actually going to get them somewhere until they confront the reality of the sin in their own life and they repent of it, you know, and that's got to be the gift of grace. So I think that actually does explain an awful lot um, for people, you know, and that's sometimes very difficult to say to somebody. You know, it's easier to say in a group because we can make it generic. We can talk about the problem of sin. Well, the truth is the problem of sin is in every human heart, you know, so each of us has to confront it. And we have to try to uproot it. It's the biggest obstacle to happiness because it's what divorces us from God. So until you deal with that, um, you're not really dealing with, you know, the reality. And that's why, that's why we, need, we need God's grace. We need the sacrament of confession. We need to constantly uh, apologize to our, to our parents, to our spouses, to our friends. Like, you know, we have to repent and start over. And that's, you know, that's the path, I think. Thank you, Father, again, for your talk. Uh, so I know I, before Aquinas, like Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, they were Christians generally were hostile or try to avoid them. So uh, what was the Christian, before Aquinas, the Christian view on happiness, the Christian philosophy and thought on happiness, say, and how did Aquinas like, synthesize those early thoughts of happiness into his own philosophy? That, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think the two great figures um, at least in, in what I've read, would be St. Augustine and also uh, Boethius. Like if you're just talking about early Christian writers who show up prominently in Aquinas' thought, Aristotle, of course, not a Christian, but had a lot of very deep insights in this department. So it's not just Christians who have something to say about that. But you could also talk about, um, you know, Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, in a way, this is... This is just the message of Jesus. You know, so uh, what is the Sermon on the Mount? It's the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for there shall be the kingdom of God. And blessed are, etc. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. What does that blessed mean? Well, Augustine writes a whole um, commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, on those Beatitudes. And he says, this is Jesus saying, this is happiness. It's Beatitude. 
So the word in Latin, beatitudo, which could be translated as happiness. So happy are the happy are the peacemakers, happy are the poor in spirit. He's telling us the real ingredient to lasting happiness, which is going to be some kind of divine life, really, in the end. That's that's my short answer to you. I mean, that that could be a doctoral dissertation, really answering your question, but that, that would be a very brief answer. All right, thank you so much for being here, Father, and thank everyone.